Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and favorite autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This episode, we're dissecting Crossing Jordan, Season 4, Episode 9, titled Necessary Risks. We'll be dissecting organ harvesting and some 1800s Victorian-era medical history at the end. So, let's get into it. So we start with Jordan and the team heading to a dorm room for a scene. They meet the detective who is already there, and the decedent is dead. On the, well, obviously, the decedent is dead. As a, <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're at the scene. In case you didn't know, decedents are dead. But this decedent is on the lower bunk of a bunk bed in a dorm room, and his name is Zach Bouchard, and he is 19 years old. The RA told the detective that he was there on a fencing scholarship. Did your college have a fencing team? No. So I went to a really small private college, so we didn't have that. But we did have Quidditch, which most schools don't. Same. A lot of them do, actually. Really? I thought that was like a niche type (laughs) of thing. No. It got really big. They have like a whole World Cup like in different states. And Costa knows more about it because he like traveled for it. He was... He was really, really good. But yeah, it's a big thing. I wish we had fencing. My high school had fencing. Yours did? Mine didn't. I'm trying. I went to a very big public school, the opposite of yours, and I'm, we had so many activities and sports. I'm one, there had to be at least a fencing club, I'm thinking, that I just didn't know about. It took me forever to find the Quidditch team. Anyway, Zach Bouchard was there on a fencing scholarship, and a maintenance guy who had an order to fix a light in the dorm room found him. Jordan finds an empty pack of 20 painkillers next to the decedent's bed. They say they didn't find a suicide note, but Jordan is thinking that this looks a lot like a suicide. She then photographs the deceased as found, which is a green flag. So you always want to take scene photos of and like how you found the body. And this also helps for our part of the investigation. When we're in the autopsy suite, we can refer back to the scene photos. And when we do our external examination, it's really helpful to know how the body was found. So we then cut to another scene at a hotel And this hotel manager had found a body about an hour ago. Apparently, some officers were there arresting a drug dealer a few rooms down and probably scared off whoever was committing this crime in this hotel room. This tech and Dr. Macy, another Emmy at the office that Jordan works at, walk into the hotel bathroom to see a dead body facing away from them in the bathtub. They approach the body and see that it has been carved open and the organs have all been removed. The tech says something like, the urban legend lives on. And then he says that there should be a phone nearby and a message of some kind. And Dr. Macy asks what the hell he's talking about. And the tech goes on into how there's an urban legend of a tourist being kidnapped and then his kidneys are harvested and he wakes up in a tub full of ice and a message to call 911. And the only thing I could think of in this scene, I know you're younger than me, so I don't know if you were on the internet at this time. Did you ever watch Charlie the Unicorn? on youtube charlie we gotta go to candy mountain charlie. <laughs> candy mountain. and then at the end they steal his kidney yeah he's like oh, i'm a kidney <laughs> as soon as he's talking about someone being kidnapped and their kidney stolen i was like oh it's like charlie the unicorn because i'm a millennial who quoted that way too often in middle school like i watched that i made that my personality in middle school was like dumb youtube videos so dr macy tells the tech to get back to reality just like i need to get back to reality and stop quoting youtube And the detective at the scene says the decedent is Arturo Sanchez. They investigate the body further and see that there is one incision that is sewn up. And Macy wonders why the perpetrator would bother sewing the person up if they were just going to fully cut them open or remove all the organs anyway. He says it's going to be hard to do an autopsy with all of the organs gone, which is true. Honestly, when we get bodies back from Gift of Life and they've done their harvesting, it's you're basically not even doing an autopsy because they already removed everything. You just happen to have the body. Yeah, I was going to say most of my job is taking out the organs. So if we ever got a body with no organs, I would just, all right, there's nothing. I can... We just take pictures and be like, yep, I see them. Take some pictures, take some fingerprints, maybe collect some vitreous fluid if there's still any. The whiteboard is just all zeros. <laughs> it's just empty. The whiteboard where we write the organ weights, just a bunch of X's. Nope, nothing. So they're thinking that this is some kind of body harvesting, obviously. Like, as soon as they said that in the show, they're like, this is some kind of organ harvesting. Like, well, yeah. You think? What else? The detective is interviewing the hotel manager and asks how he rented a hotel room to a man named, quote, John Smith for a year and never met him. 
He says that he spoke to him once on the phone and he made a standing reservation for that room every Sunday. The manager left the key under the doormat and he said every Monday the room would be spotless and there would be a lot of money on the dresser so he didn't ask too many questions. He did say though that he saw a young Hispanic man drive off in a rusty blue Datsun. The tech finds a surgical glove in the room along with a used suture packet. He also collects a sample of fluid from the tub and asks Macy what he thinks it could be, and they conclude that it is some kind of organ preservative, which helps confirm their organ harvesting theory. So my first thought was formalin when they said preservative, but they're actually talking about UW solution. It was developed at the University of Wisconsin, and it contains lactobinate and raffinose, which both help fight infections. So a little interesting tidbit for you there. They also found a wire receipt with a message in Spanish that the victim had dropped. He had wired $1,000 to Guatemala that morning. Macy doesn't think this man was kidnapped. He now starts to think that he was selling his organs consensually. Back at the college campus, Jordan and that detective are questioning the fencing team about Zach Bouchard. His roommate, Lucas, is at practice, and he's there because he says he didn't know what else to do. He thought Zach was a great guy and a great fencer, but they weren't really close and they didn't share much with each other. So Zach seemed to keep stuff to himself. Lucas says that they should talk to Professor Danvers. She's Zach's faculty advisor, and Lucas seems to think that they were sleeping together. In the morgue, Jordan is starting Zach's autopsy. And my first thought when she started this was she's drawing blood, which yes, we do draw blood at autopsy, but she's doing it from his, what looked like his median cubital or cephalic vein, which is like right in your elbow pit, which is if anybody's ever gotten blood drawn or donated blood, that's where they get it from. So that's where you draw blood from in a living person. I've never done that. For a case. I feel like if we did do that for a case, there wouldn't be much blood flowing in his arms anymore. So you'd get like nothing. Yeah. We have to hit like bigger Yeah. Bigger veins or arteries. Like we hit we'll get femoral blood, which is in your leg, which we've talked about. That's the primary blood flow to your lower limbs. Or subclavian, which is beneath the clavicle, which is near the heart, or sometimes we'll get directly cardiac, like from the heart and yeah like cut the heart and then it all just pulls in the the pericardial sac yeah and so i that was the first thing i thought of i was like i don't know if other people have done it this way but i don't think that's how you do it <laughs> no i've ever i don't think that's how you do it at I all don't think that's how you do it i'm wondering if they just saw they're like oh well this is how you get blood from living people this must be how they do it at autopsies and it's like no so our first red flag of the episode for her drawing blood poorly. She notes cuts on the victim's arms and says you wouldn't get these cuts from fencing. She gives the tech in the room the blood that she just drew, which looked like maybe two mils, and says that he will find hydrocodone in the system and she needs to know how much because the painkiller that she found in the room, the empty painkillers, was a hydrocodone packet. So she's presuming that that's going to be in his system. She just needs to know how much. She thinks this is what killed him. But then she spots a bloody fingerprint on the decedent's shirt collar. The tech said that maybe it was from his cut on his hand and then he touched his own collar. So maybe it was his own fingerprint. She asked the tech to pull the print anyway to be sure. So to pull a bloody fingerprint, the Amido Black reagent is a perfect solution for staining finger marks on both porous and non-porous fabrics. However, since the final result is a dark blue-black color in the end, this technique is usually done on light-colored clothing to achieve sufficient contrast. And this guy had a crazy dark pattern shirt on, and the tech is very upset that he has to try and get a print off of it. Professor Danvers then shows up to the morgue asking to speak to the Emmy on the case, which is Jordan. Danvers says that it isn't possible that Zach died by suicide. She says Zach was special and driven, and he was more sure of himself than any of the other students. The detective then comes in to talk to the professor and asks if there's anything in her relationship with Zach that would have led him to kill himself. The detective then says that Zach's roommate told him that she and Zach were in a sexual relationship. She says that she can't believe any of this. Jordan is starting Zach's autopsy, and we will say that she's at least not holding the scalpel like an angry toddler this time, but something with the way she's cutting just seems too forced. She seems angry. She's just always angry when she's doing autopsies, and you'd think that because she loved being an ME, she'd be like, oh, easy breezy, I've been doing this for years. She just seems uptight yeah when i first watched the episode i brought that up to you and you brought up the good point maybe she's actually cutting through 
a rubber or a plastic or something because it's a prop and that's probably harder to cut through and they might not even give her a really sharp scalpel for behind the scenes so like she might it might be like really blunt as to like not hurt herself because she's an actor she's probably actually trying it's probably very hard to cut through whatever she's cutting through that leads me into another red flag based on this autopsy alone and just on how the rib cage looks yes she's probably cutting through whatever the special effects team put together to put on top of this rib cage, and it really looks just like foam with red paint on it. There's no layer of fat or muscle. It's really just a flap of skin and then the fake ribs. And all the colors are super dark. We've talked about this so many times on this podcast. We're like, at a normal autopsy, your fat is like a bright yellow and your muscle is also a very bright red. It's a very colorful thing an autopsy is, and... This autopsy, in not the best lighting situation either, is all just very dark and dull. But the detective is there saying that he isn't surprised the professor is trying to hide her relationship with Zach, given their age difference. Jordan calls him out for being a hypocrite because if it were a male professor with a female student, he would be giving him a high five. She should call out that hypocrisy. Because even he admitted it. The detective was even like, nah, I'd give him a low five. I'm like, ew, you're just being gross. (laughs) Don't be a pig. Like, it's messed up in both situations. She then says that Zach did not kill himself. Looking inside after opening him up, she sees that his lower ribs are fractured and there's hemorrhaging, which is just broken blood vessels, in the muscle tissue. It looks like he was burked, meaning that somebody compressed his chest until he died and he was deliberately asphyxiated. Jordan thinks he didn't fight back because he was slipped the painkillers. The detective thinks the professor did it to cover up their alleged affair. I don't want to know the answer to this. I'm not actually planning anything, but like, how do you, like, they were 20 hydrocodone. How do you slip someone 20 pills? Like, crushed him up, put him in a drink. I wonder if they knew that he had them in some way or got them specifically because it was, like, a premeditated thing. Yeah. Did they crush it up and, like, put it in his water or coffee? That's what I'm guessing their theory is. But do I? would you taste that? There would be some, like, film on top of if it was in water. Like, you'd see that, like, powdery film on top if it wasn't stirred in all the way. Yeah. I don't know why I got stuck on that detail. I'm sure there's ways to do it, but not that I'm condoning doing that, guys. I was just like, how do you slip someone 20 pills? Maybe he was really injured from fencing with the cuts on his arms, so he was in a lot of pain, and whoever was like, hey, Mm -hmm. you might want to take a little more than you think. Take 20. Meanwhile, Macy's doing the autopsy for the hotel case, and... Cue another red flag for the terrible autopsy dummies that they use in the show. Ugh, I can't get over it. Hire, just hire us. We'll tell you everything on how th- how things are done right. Yeah, just hire us as forensic consultants. I'm I, I'm cheap. I just I really just want to go behind the scenes on a TV set. Like that. I just want to be on set, man. I just want to feel cool. Give me a headset, and I. That's all. Give me a chair with my name on the back. It doesn't even have to be my name. It could be somebody else's. I'll just sit in it. Just a name. <laughs> just a name. It says Bob Smith. <laughs> and you're like, yes. The tech had run the fingerprints on the surgical glove, but it came up with no match. And they're still running trace on the suture packet. Macy said that the victim was strip mined. Even the cartilage in his knees is gone and his corneas are gone. The tech in the room then makes a comment that parts of the human body are worth 230 grand sold separately, which I believe that wholeheartedly, especially on the black market, which I've never gone on the black market, but I believe people will pay whatever for parts that they need. Oh, yeah. I love how the tech just dropped this knowledge. That he was like, oh, I know this off the top of my head. 230 grand. Yeah. And he said it was like a trivia question. What kind of trivia Yeah, are you going to where they're asking you about black market organ prices? And did you know the answer to that trivia or did you find out the answer and now you're just saying it as your own fact? Was there a serial killer in the back of the bar that got it right and you learned it from him? (laughs) Or were you the serial killer that got it right? Was this an apple? trivia i've been to so many like mostly i've been to like themed trivias but like i've been to just regular trivia and i feel like they wouldn't ask something about black market organ prices this has never come up in any trivia night i've gone to on the black market how much does a kidney go for the sewn incision still isn't making sense to macy and the tech says it looks like it was done with a running subcuticular suture 
which are intradermal stitches, which it's placed immediately below the epidermal layer. So it looks like a trained surgeon did this. Another tech comes in with the translation from the wire receipt message. It was from Arturo, who was the victim, and it says that he wanted his family to use the money to send Juan and Inez, his children, to school. He said more money would be coming. They end up getting a hit on the trace for the suture packet, and it came back from somewhere called Shiler Medical Supply. So they head right over to the medical supply store, and a worker there says the name John Smith doesn't ring a bell, but he gets lots of orders. The detective asks to take a look through their system to check. They end up finding a John Smith whose address is listed as the motel where the body was just found. So... Also, how did they find that that quick? They just typed in John Smith and only one name came up. <laughs> like, there's no way there's only one The John most Smith. popular name on earth. Oh, there's only one. I laughed so hard because the, the worker, who I think is the manager, is like, mm, John Smith, I don't know that name. And then they just like, he's like, can we look? And we just, they type in John Smith, enter. And like, immediately, it's the one they're looking for. Only one. There's no other Johns. There's no other Smiths. The beep boop pop and it's him there's no way there's only he's like we get so many customers from all over the world i'm like yeah and you only have one john smith and you don't i don't believe you even though he had a standing order for every week to be delivered to the hotel room the worker at the supply store says he runs the medical license of the people who order from him on the initial order and then runs a dea number if it clears their name goes into the system but not their dea number apparently They go to question the delivery worker outside and see someone in a baseball cap running toward a rusty blue Datsun that matches the description of the man the hotel manager saw delivering things to the motel room. They go to question him and he tries to run immediately, which looks really sketchy on his part. And the detective grabs him and asks why he was running, and he says, I didn't mean to do it. Tell Sylvia she can have the money. He thinks this is all about his alimony that he owes. Do people typically draw their guns when they're (laughs) investigating? Right? She was like, I'll end you right here. She's like, I got a gun. And he's like, no, I'll give the alimony money. They then go to question him about the murders, and he says he doesn't know the guy, but that he just leaves a delivery for a guy named John Smith. He says he was once late for a delivery and saw a guy go in, a guy he recognized from his neighborhood, who was a doctor. At the precinct, a detective is questioning Professor Danvers. He tells her that Zach was murdered, and he also says that maybe he should ask the professor's husband, who she is in a custody battle with, if he knows anything. She says that her husband has nothing to do with this, and that he doesn't know about her and Zach. He keeps trying to question her, but she storms out and says she's going to call a lawyer. As she leaves the precinct, Jordan catches up with her and says the professor is a hell of a good liar. The professor said she spent a decade in a horrible marriage and that Zach saved her life, but she didn't kill him. Back to the motel case, the detective and the other doc, Macy, they go to the doctor that their witness saw. They go to a corner store market. They ask to see a doctor, Alex Cuevas. A pharmacist points them to the grocery store worker stocking food. They go to question him, and he says that he was there, but he didn't kill anyone. He's a surgeon from Colombia who wanted to start a new life here, but he's being blackmailed into harvesting kidneys. The person blackmailing him is named John Smith, and he calls him at a store when the patient is, quote, ready, and he goes to the room takes out the kidney, puts it in a cooler, and then leaves the patient very much alive. He says he didn't kill Arturo Sanchez, and he didn't even harvest his kidney because it showed signs of amyloidosis, protein deposits in the tissue that could be caused by systemic infection. So, meaning he could have had an infectious disease. He says he closed him up and left, which explains the close incision the ME saw on the body that wasn't tracking with the murder. Dr. Cuevos goes on to say there were plenty of volunteers that would get paid a thousand up front to have their kidneys harvested and another five thousand after surgery. He says he didn't get paid and he didn't want to be a part of this, but he's being blackmailed and they still take him downtown for questioning. Back to the college case, the detectives go to question Zach's roommate, Lucas, at fencing practice again. He says he wasn't aware of Professor Danvers going to their dorm room to see Zach at all, but between classes and fencing, he isn't in the dorm a lot. The detectives say that Zach's case is no longer a suicide, but a homicide, and that he had noticed cuts on Lucas's arms that kind of looked like the ones that uh, Zach had at autopsy. 
Lucas goes on to say that it was just a stupid thing. They were messing around with antique blades while practicing, you know, as one does. Normal. And things got out of hand while they were goofing around. He says if the coach finds out that they used real blades, he would be kicked off the team. He says that he was at practice till 6 at the night that Zach was killed, and then he went to a kegger in a different dorm. He says he didn't go back to the dorm that night because he hooked up with a girl named Amber, and then he woke up in her dorm, and he was late for practice, so he just went straight to practice. He doesn't remember Amber's last name, but he tells the detective what dorm she lives in. Back in the morgue, a tech is telling Jordan that the print on Zach's shirt is unreadable. There is no way to lift the print, so he had to digitally remove the background. He then ran an algorithm to estimate ridge minutiae using mathematical probabilities in a Gaussian envelope. I didn't know what half of this was. <laughs> so. He was just talking to sound smart the math part i didn't get i i know it so a fingerprint ridge it's like the elevated strip of skin that begin as raised apertures around the pores and then they join together to form rows of ridges that were like the raised part that you see on a fingerprint like the lines on a fingerprint Mm -hmm. and so i had to look up what a gaussian envelope was and it's basically like a bell curve graph like it's the formula for like a bell curve in mathematics the definition is a function of the base form and with a parametric extension for arbitrary real constants a b and non-zero c any mathematicians out there listening are there any mathematicians? I don't know what this means. Are there any mathematicians <laughs> out there listening? I'm sorry if I got it wrong. I just looked it up on Google really quick because I didn't know what it was. Basically, he's enhancing the print so that he can get an eight-point match. So the minutia of the fingerprint ridges are unique ridge patterns with small details that are used to positively match a fingerprint to a suspect. So fingerprint examiners look at differences between ridges, the number of minutia, and location of the impressions. So these factors determine points of identification so these are the eight points of identification he's looking for then someone who i'm assuming is the office manager played by katherine hahn who i love comes in and says that she just spoke to zach bouchard's parents but the weird thing is zach bouchard died when he was five years old dun 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 of course then we dramatically cut back to the motel case and a tech is pulling a maggot out of the victim's ear and says it's califora vomitoria which I forgot to look up if that was real, but it has the word vomit in it. I was just like, is that because it's gross? Oh, hold on. I just looked it up. Califora vomitoria is a blue bottle fly. Oh, okay. So he's right. I have blue bottle fly. That's like common. Yeah. I just never knew the like scientific name. I just say, oh, there's a maggot. Well, normal people don't really know the scientific name unless you're like an entomologist. I'm a bug person though. I love bugs. I feel like I should have known that. California vomitoria. I'm going to know it now. In autopsy, are you going to say, oh, it's a California vomitoria? I'm going to now, and I'm going to be really obnoxious (laughs) about it. You're going to hate me. You're like, damn it. I wish we never watched that episode of Crossing Jordan, Alice. You're so annoying. (laughs) So, of course, we all know that maggots appear when the body starts to decompose after three to five days. But this is strange for the body they have because this body is too fresh for maggots. In the body, they find blood flukes, also known as schistosomiasis. I might be saying that wrong, everyone. I'm trying my best. And Macy thinks that this could be schistosoma mansoni. Schistosomiasis is a disease caused by infection with freshwater parasitic worms that are found in certain tropical and subtropical countries. So Macy comes in and asks if they stained the prostate sample in the Congo red stain yet. So staining with Congo red is a qualitative method used for the identification of amyloids in vitro and in tissue sections. So the stain does confirm amyloidosis, likely the results of this parasitic infection. Amyloidosis is a rare disease characterized by the buildup of abnormal amyloid deposits in the body. So then the detective calls to say that she found the organ broker. Such a strange, I know it's like illegal, but that's such a weird job title. Like that's two things I wouldn't expect to hear together. Like two words. The fact that this exists. A broker, an organ, like that's fine together on their own. But then you have an organ broker. Like that's not real. It doesn't make sense. So they then go back to question the medical supply manager that said he'd never heard of John Smith that they spoke to earlier. Liar. Liar. You only had one John Smith in your system. That's something I would remember. So they have phone records of him calling Dr. Cuevas at the grocery store. The manager then calls over one of his delivery men who confirms his story that he picks up groceries for Mr. Shiler, the manager, at the market, which explains the phone calls 
from his office to the grocery store. However, Mr. Schuyler was arrested eight years ago for trying to buy a kidney from an undercover officer. I feel like that's what I would open with when I was going to confront him, not the phone call. Yeah, open with the big gotcha moment. Hey, you were arrested eight years ago for the exact thing we're investigating. <laughs> Doesn't that look sketchy? Also, you, you have a connection to the doctor we're also investigating. Mr. Schuyler says that his uncle needed it and that he died after three years on a waiting list. However, he says as a doctor, Macy should see the beauty in a system that saves lives and benefits all. And he goes on like a villain monologue almost. Like he hasn't confessed to anything, but like the lighting gets darker and he gets more serious and like his eyes go a little crazy. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh. It was all like, oh, hypothetically, if I was doing this, wouldn't you be proud of me basically yeah if i was doing this wouldn't it be brilliant because i'm so smart but i'm too smart for you you have the crazy eyes like i figured out everything and you have no idea but it's all hypothetical and i'm not really doing yeah. it hypothetically so as they're leaving the detective says she'll get someone to put traps on his phone good idea back in the office the text says that the maggot that they found in arturo sanchez's ear was radioactive Chromatography, which in chemical analysis, chromatography is a laboratory technique for the separation of mixture into components, and these results show that the maggot came from soil contaminated with uranium-235 that's used in power and weapons plants. And I know I've mentioned this before, but my boyfriend, Costa, is a chemist, and a radiochemist, and um, I was... <laughs> watching the episode in our office and taking my notes and I paused and I just yelled to him to the other room I'm like hey what do you know about uranium 235 and he like paused for a minute and he's like is this for the podcast or are you doing bombs in there like what are you what are you are you making a bomb like what's going on and I was like it's for the podcast and he's like yeah that's that's used for like military grade weapons. it's used for bombs in a bomb factory (laughs) they're bombs (laughs) so yeah he got very concerned with my questions Probably so did my FBI agent that watches my Google searches. (laughs) So they traced the soil back to the Concord Uranium Processing Plant. A study was done there to assess the cost of cleaning the contaminated site. They did the soil analysis every 500 square feet. They were able to trace the 500 square foot range of where that specific maggot came from based on how radioactive it was. They go to the Concord Uranium Processing Plant field to do a dig. They find two decomposed bodies stripped like Arturo Sanchez was. They find some tire marks and drops of engine oil, so it looks like someone had just left. They also find a fresh body, also completely stripped of the organs. They bring these bodies back to the morgue to examine. They find blue plastic tarp on the bodies like the first victim and conclude that this is what the murderer used to wrap them up in to transport to this grave site. He must have unfurled the tarp at the dump site and then reused it, which resulted in the maggot from the site ending up on Arturo in the hotel room. Dr. Cuevos couldn't be the murderer because he was in police custody being questioned when they assumed the fresh body was dumped. In the autopsy suite, they have a chuck or like a sheet over the lower half of the body in the autopsy table. This is a red flag because you don't do this in our morgue or any morgue, but we get that it's a TV show and just know in real life, the body is just, you don't cover anything. We need to see the whole body. You're basically on display. You need to see everything. We get that it's for TV. They can't do that. So all three bodies are being tested for infectious disease. They are going to need blood types, HLA markers, human leukocyte antigen typing used to match patients and donors for bone marrow or cord transplants. So your immune system uses these markers to recognize which cells belong in your body and which do not. So they know which to attack a foreign pathogen and what to not attack. And they also need leukocytes, which are just your white blood cells, to cross-match on the fresh body. They then notified the National Transplant Registry that potentially diseased organs could be available in the next 48 hours. They want to determine time of death for the decomposed victims and start facial reconstruction and cross-reference any missing persons reports. There were no matches to any missing persons, so they asked Dr. Cuevas who he recognizes. And another red flag, they got this facial reconstruction back in, like, minutes, which is definitely not at all how it is in real life. I didn't even catch that. You're so right. They, like, it was the one scene, then they cut to, like, a montage computer for, like, 15 seconds and then boom they got a a person they got three three people within like 30 seconds yeah not how it happens 
He operated on two out of the three men. He says he removed their kidneys, but they were still alive when he left. He says anyone can crudely remove organs as long as there's someone there to clean up before transplant. He doesn't know the third man's name, but he says he worked at a restaurant as a busboy. Back to the college dorm case, Professor Danvers is back to talk to Jordan. Jordan found out that Zach Bouchard's real name was David Parks, and he's actually 32 years old and a divorced man. So, not a 19-year-old kid. I don't know how he pulled it off. Also, he really didn't look, and I know they get older people to play, like, teenagers, but he didn't even try to look 19. Yeah. The professor didn't know about him, and Jordan says that maybe something from his past caught up with him. He has no records, no warrants, so they can't figure out what he was running from. They find out that Zach didn't have a prescription for hydrocodone, but that Professor Danvers did. They spoke to Zach slash David's ex-wife. She said that he dropped out of Ohio State when she got pregnant, and they got married, but she left him for someone else. The ex-wife thinks that maybe Zach slash David never got over missing college, and that's why he was pretending to be 19 again. That's intense. Why wouldn't you just go back to college as a 32-year-old person? Why do you have to be pretending to be 19 i think jordan asks that too but i wonder if like would they let a 32 year old stay in like the dorms oh definitely not yeah that's probably he he wanted really creepy he wanted the full college experience so he probably had had to pretend to be a teen listen i'm a cool 30 year old i'm not going to keggers (laughs) i'm not going to college party would you be on the fencing team no definitely not (laughs) i'd be on the quidditch team (laughs) The tech got a fingerprint match from the bloody print that was on the t-shirt, and it's a match for Professor Danvers. Back to the hotel-slash-organ harvesting case, the medical supply manager is in for interrogation. Several witnesses saw him speaking to the final victim, which was the fresh body from the dump site, at the restaurant he was a busboy at a few days before he died. A security camera from the restaurant saw the man get into Mr. Shiler's car, They see Mr. Shiler on the security camera footage handing the man an envelope of money, allegedly the $1,000 down payment for his kidney. Mr. Shiler says he was just helping with his rent. In a shady back alley. Super shady. They try to tissue type the last victim to see if they can cross-reference that with anyone waiting for an organ donation who recently took themselves off of the waiting list, and the Emmy tracks an old man who was sold a kidney from the black market so he could get off the waiting list. The man who sold the kidney to him was Roger Shiler. He paid him $60,000 directly into his account. So the trivia question was wrong. It said 230 grand. Yep, this is significantly Mm. less. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. Someone's lying. (laughs) The bank helps track it back to Shiler, but when they get to the Shiler Medical Supply Company, everything is gone. The traps on Shiler's phone trace the last call to a Russian national who had a private plane scheduled to leave the airport in half an hour. They rush to the airport and find the Russian national with a heart for transplant. Just a casual heart. He was like, he was like, don't look it, don't touch it. It was in this like container thing. Don't look in this giant box next to me. There's nothing to see here. I'm just on my private jet. For one insane moment, I thought they were going to open the box and Mr. Shiler was going to be inside. I'm like, what is this? Like some magician. His head or like he's hiding? No, like him hiding. Like waiting to get on the plane, but he's just like stuffed in a suitcase he's secretly a contortionist he just contorted in there i thought they were gonna open it and find he's trying to flee the country and just hiding with like a disguise on and then they open it it's a heart i'm like that actually makes way more sense than what i was picturing that makes more sense but my scenario is funnier (laughs) so the russian national says that his son needs this heart They show home a picture of Roger Shiler, and he said that isn't the man he spoke to. They were able to get a print from the organ preservation machine, which comes back as a match for Shiler's delivery man, Manuel. The Russian national recognizes him as the man who sold him the heart. They trace Manuel back to a different hotel and barge in on him as he's, like, operating on a man to remove his organs. He's, like, about to slice him open, yeah. All dramatically. They stop him just in time, and this man is still alive, so they call the paramedics. Manuel says Shiler was an idiot, only making pennies off of kidneys. So maybe that's where the 230 grand comes in. Shiler wasn't doing very well. Maybe the trivia person 
the per- the trivia host was Manuel, and he was asking the question to see how much he should price things at. He was like, "Hey, how much would you pay?" Oh, t- oh, the high, and he just picked the highest answer. Yep, you're right. And he's like taking notes, like that's how much I'm gonna charge. This is an open-ended <laughs> question. He says no one would miss the people he was killing, and they would get more money. Back to the college dorm case, they bring Professor Danvers back into questioning about her fingerprint that they found on Zach's shirt, which, side note, she said that she was going to lawyer up, and she has not yet, so why hasn't she? I give her a red flag for not lawyering up. She keeps storming off like, you're going to talk to my lawyer, and then doesn't get a lawyer. And keeps coming back to answer their questions <laughs> without keeps a lawyer. Keeps willingly coming back, or sometimes, like, they won't even call her back. She just shows up. <laughs> just like, girl... You're not doing yourself any favors. She's the worst client a lawyer could want. The lawyer's like, wow, they made you go there 10 times. And she's like, well, nine out of the 10 times I just showed up. They didn't ask me to. And the lawyer's just like banging his head on the table. Why? (laughs) Why do you do this to me? (laughs) So she says she went to meet him at the fencing gym and she helped him clean up because he was hurt. She said Zach's roommate saw her leave on her way out. She gave Zach her hydrocodone because he was hurt and he was in pain and she wanted to help. Ah, you were right. Ha! It's like I watched the show. <laughs> she says she had never been to Zach's room. They go back to the dorm to see if the CSI team had missed anything and green flag, we haven't had much of those yet. Green flag for Jordan using orange glasses and a blue light. This is an alternative light source and it's used to basically see any hidden evidence that you can't normally see with like your eyes with everyday lighting. And they find shoe prints on the underside of the top bunk. It looks like someone laid on top of Zach and pressed their feet up on the top of the bunk bed under to get leverage to burk him. The footprints look too big to be Professor Danvers. The detective confronts Lucas in the fencing gym and he comes out with this blade, the blade that he fought Zach with, that's how he got the cuts, and he's dressed fully in his fencing gear and he's just being super dramatic for no reason i'm sorry i'm giggling so hard because this is like peak 19 year old behavior like he thinks he's so edgy he's hot shit he like sashes (laughs) in with a sword and he's like i'm gonna murder a cop (laughs) like what he literally he brought a knife to a gunfight to a gunfight yes and because the other detective was like i have a gun like what do you think you're doing the detective was not phased he was not having any of this guy's shit teenager with a sword (laughs) you think you're gonna be angsty try again so jordan comes in with the shoe as evidence and he draws his sword on her but obviously the detective has his gun and then the kid surrenders even his surrender was dramatic he like holds out the sword and like drops it i'm like oh you're yeah s- you should have been in the drama club so that's basically how this episode ends with an angsty teenager an angsty teen we've all been there except i never killed anybody he wanted to kill his roommate so he could be the star of the fencing team. Yeah, and I guess if Zach ended up telling on him for using like a real blade, he could have gotten kicked off the team and lost his scholarship or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How did Zach slash David at 32 years old get a fencing scholarship? He faked everything. So he just like, how do you fake? He had to retake the SAT. How do you fake get a scholarship? Like, don't they send like scouts to watch you play and or like do a sport in high school? Wait, was the scholarship a fake because he was 32? I get, that's what I'm wondering. I just wondered that now. How did he get a scholarship to this school? defense if like he wasn't scouted like did he have to fake go to a high school did he make up the whole him having the scholarship so he could like be on the team i feel like to get a scholarship a sports scholarship the coach is gonna have to like know who you are oh that's so true he can't just show up and be like hey i have a the coach sc- definitely will know yeah, who you are like, hey, i have this fencing scholarship and it's just like written in crayon like hey i'm good at fencing put me on the team coach how did he get a scholarship there's so many plot holes in this i can see him being 32 and like paying his own way through the school and pretending to be 19 that's weird but that makes more sense than somehow faking getting a scholarship that's i just thought of that now and it's gonna 
bother me. <laughs> well, let's get into some other fun stuff. Yes. The real reason why we loved this episode. I was so excited. So between the black market trade of body parts in this episode and the literal Birkin case, it seems obvious what true crime we are going to discuss with you this week. Birkin hair. I am so excited because one of my special interests is Victorian era medicine. So I, for a while, hyper fixated on this case because it is insane, had a lot to do with medical history and ended up changing a lot of laws that still are in effect today in medical history and medical research. So anyway, let's get into it. In 1823 in Britain, the Judgment of Death Act, which states that in all cases except for treason or murder, that judges can use their personal discretion on whether or not to use the death penalty. This resulted in a number of crimes punishable by death dropping. So this seems like it would be a good thing. But back in the 19th century, this was a problem because medical and anatomical schools were only legally allowed to dissect bodies of people who had been condemned to death. So there was no such thing as like donating your body to science. So this led to an extreme shortage in cadavers for educational purposes and an increase in grave robbing. So grave robbing became so common that relatives would often watch over the graves of their recently deceased loved ones. And even like watchtowers were installed in certain cemeteries and graveyards to like keep a lookout for people stealing bodies from graves. So the, quote, fresher the body was, because remember, embalming wasn't a practice, more money that the body was worth. Right, because who wants to work on a decomposing body? Exactly. So if somebody was, like, buried very recently, they were more likely be attempted to be grave robbed. This led to not just grave robbing, but also to murder, because fresher bodies were worth more money and were more valuable. So this brings us to Burke and Hare whose murder spree spanned from 1827 to 1828 in Edinburgh, Scotland. William Burke and William Hare, yes, they are both named William, which is why we're only going to call them Burke and Hare from now on, were both from the province of Ulster in the north of Ireland. They moved to Scotland to work the Union Canal, Burke having left behind a wife and two children. Burke and Hare met and became friends when Burke moved in with his mistress, Helen McDougall, to living quarters close to Tanner's Close in the west port of Edinburgh. Hare lived on the same street and ran a boarding house with his wife, Margaret. In December 1827, one of Hare's tenants in his boarding house, who was renting there, he was an elderly army prisoner known as, quote, Old Donald, died of natural causes while renting a room with Hare. So Burke and Hare decided to pay this man's debt, the rent that he owed. They took this man's body to the medical school at Edinburgh University where they were introduced to Professor Robert Knox, who was the anatomy professor, and he paid them very well for old Donald's body because it was very fresh. So this inspired them to keep providing Professor Knox with bodies in exchange for money. So when another one of Hare's tenants fell ill, the pair became too impatient to see if this man would succumb to his affliction and took matters into their own hands. So they decided to get this man drunk on whiskey, and when he passed out drunk, They suffocated him by covering his mouth and nose while forcibly restraining him, sitting on his chest, the act that would later become known as burking. So I actually don't know if in the episode he was technically burked because his chest was compressed, but I don't know if his mouth and his nose were covered because that's the other half of burking. No, I think they just said that he was like sitting on top and like using the top bunk as leverage to compress his chest more, but he was passed out with all the hydrocodone. Yeah. Maybe he had a pillow over his face. Oh, and he was like using the back of his head. He had his head. Yeah, maybe. So maybe he was technically burked. Maybe I missed that detail. So they used this method that they came up with. I think one of them would hold their hand over the mouth and the nose, and one of them would sit on this person's chest while they were passed out drunk. They used this method because it left very little to no visible marks on the body, which would later be dissected as a cadaver, which also made it more valuable. So the pair continued to burke other victims in Edinburgh, preying on the poorest communities because they were less likely to be noticed missing or they were less likely to be recognized when they were later dissected in anatomy labs. So the duo murdered at least 16 people for 7 to 10 pounds in payment apiece. However, after an argument between Burke and Hare about Burke's suspicion that Hare and his wife Margaret were cutting out Burke and Helen out of their deals with Robert Knox, Burke and his wife Helen, or his mistress Helen, began taking their own lodgers. So they began renting out their home to other people so they could have their own victims. So on Halloween 1828... 
Burke and Hare's final victim, Marjorie Campbell Doctory, were invited to stay with Burke and Helen. Burke's other lodgers was a couple named James and Anne Gray, and they were invited to stay with the Hares that evening so that Burke and Helen could murder Marjorie. However, when the Grays returned the next day to Burke's lodging, they noticed that Marjorie was missing. And they were told that she had to leave suddenly because she had become too, quote, flirtatious with Burke, and so Helen made her leave. The couple became suspicious when Burke and Helen wouldn't let them enter the spare room, even though they had kept some of their things in there. So when Burke and Helen left, they entered the room where their stuff was and found Marjorie's body hidden under the bed. I like how Burke and Helen just like left and were like, don't go in that room, guys. I'm telling you, don't do it. And they're like, I'm not thinking about (laughs) it. Don't go in there. I'm not doing it. I'm just thinking about it. I did it. (laughs) If you're going to hide a body, hide a body better than just putting it under the bed. They weren't very smart about it. So Burke and Helen came home and Helen offered them 10 pounds to keep their discovery a secret. However, the Greys were good people and they refused and they reported what they found to the police. But because it's old timey, they had to like go to the police. And while they left to go to the police, Burke and Hare had already moved Marjorie's body and sold it to Knox. But Burke and Helen and later Hare and Margaret were still arrested, all giving conflicting accounts and Burke and Hare just pointing fingers at each other. However, the police had little hard evidence to prove the crimes had been committed, and eventually the Lord Advocate, Sir William Ray, offered Hare immunity in return for testifying against Burke and his mistress, Helen. So in December 1828, Burke and Helen were both charged with Marjorie Doctory's murder, and Burke was charged with other additional murders. Helen's complicity in Marjorie's murder was deemed, quote, not proven under Scottish law, and she was set free, but Burke was sentenced to death by hanging. He was hanged at Lawn Market in front of a boisterous crowd of over 25,000 on the 28th of January, 1829. And fun fact, I have been to, like, the area where he was hanged when I went to Scotland. Yeah, Yeah. you told me about that. It's crazy. I also think I saw Tanner's Close. I didn't know as much about Burke and Hare when I was in Scotland, unfortunately. Now I like I've been to Scotland twice and I didn't know a lot about this case yet. And now that I do, I'm like, oh my god, I was there and I saw a plaque for the thing and I didn't understand what it was and now I do and I didn't appreciate it. After he was hanged, he was put on public display and then in a sweet twist of justice, his body was donated to medical science. Oh, how the tables have turned. Exactly. It's said that a lot of anatomy students and I think professors had, quote, souvenirs of his skin. So using it to, like, bind books. I've heard that there was a wallet somebody made out of his skin. I heard that, too. I don't know how true that is or if it's just an urban legend. But truth is that Burke's skeleton is still on display at Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh next to his death mask and the life mask of Hare's face. So despite very clearly being involved in all of these murders, Hare was released in February 1829 and escaped across the border to England. And it's said that no one really knows whatever happened to him, but it's rumored that he was thrown into a lime quarry by an angry mob and lived out the rest of his days as a blind beggar in London. Both Helen and Margaret also fled Edinburgh, with Helen having to emigrate to Australia and Margaret moving to Ireland. The Birkenhair murders, followed by another case that I don't know a ton about from 1831, with like very similar murders in London that called the London Burgers, led to the Anatomy Act of 1832, which allowed doctors, anatomy lecturers, and medical students greater access to cadavers and allowed for the legal donation of bodies to medical science. So this effectively calls to an end the illegal body snatching and hopefully murder trade. We got this information from a Historic UK article titled The Story of Burke and Hare by Ben Johnson, which will be linked in our show notes if you want to learn more about this crazy case. Also, if you want to do even more reading about it, the book The Anatomy Murders by Lisa Rossner is a great read. Obviously, they made this act, but people still sell organs and like sell cadavers on the black market and I'll do it all illegally. 
I just, like, can't process in my head how somebody can do that. Yeah. I feel like the professor that they were selling it to, selling the bodies to, had to know something weird was going on. He knew. He just wanted the cadavers for the school. Yeah. He didn't care where they came from. He was turning the other cheek. They get more into his side of it in the anatomy murders book which is really interesting because he also i don't know he might have been charged with a crime but i don't know or he might have been prosecuted i don't know if he was ever officially charged for a crime but robert knox i think also had to flee edinburgh because he was like well he was like an accessory yeah people they were livid with him obviously it was crazy and so they eventually got found out because they started and this is so sad they would like i said earlier they would kill people in poorer communities because they wouldn't be as recognized but eventually they started getting too greedy and they killed someone like someone wealthy no it was someone who lived on the street but his name was jamie and he was well known around town and people would like take him in and feed him and he was like known by a lot of people and they, I think they killed him. And that's when people were like, wait a second. Where are you getting these bodies? He wasn't sick. Why is he here? What's going on? And then obviously with the final one with Marjorie Doctory, they got sloppy and uh, caught as they should have been. But yeah, crazy. It took him a whole year to get caught. It took him a whole year to get caught. And even before that, like grave robbing, in my opinion, not as bad as actually killing people but still shameful like that was a known thing people like other people were doing that but it wasn't just like Bur- like, i don't even know if burke and Hare actually technically grave robbed anybody but other people were just stealing bodies <laughs> from fresh graves and it was just like oh turn the other cheek and that was another thing with poorer people were getting stole like their bodies were getting stolen more often because wealthier people could afford to have like protections put on their graves. Yeah, they had better coffins. Yeah, so that was another thing, just unfair treatment based on wealth disparity. It was crazy. 1800s medicine is probably, it's, it's definitely one of like my favorite history things to learn about. It's so insane. Everything that they were doing to learn medicine and anatomy is crazy. I want to know how that judge felt when he's like, all right, you're going to be hanged for your crimes and then we're going to donate you to science and see how you like it. Publicly. I wonder if they told him, like, this is what we're going to do. Deal with it. Well, he probably knew if he was going to get hanged, he would be used for science because that was yeah uh, that was usually the only people that were used in anatomy labs were people who were hanged for a crime and it's you, you told me this earlier at work it's called burking because hair testified against burke mm-hmm. so it's really the concept of compressing somebody's chest until they die is known as burking because burke was the one who got hanged for the crimes yeah because he was technically the only one convicted, even though everybody knows. Everyone knows that Hare was also involved. Everyone knows he was doing it too, but he was granted immunity to give testimony against Burke. Definitely check out Anatomy Murders and the article that we're going to link in our show notes. It's mm-hmm. this story and everything else about Victorian medicine yeah. is so much fun to learn about. So to end this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and six red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Crossing Jordan does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us anything you want to talk about. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.